1: Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio. It's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell.
2: Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz.
0: And I'm Andrew Mitchell.
2: And it was another fun week in technology. Apple is just, you know, so upset, uh, has, has really upset Facebook dramatically. Facebook lost is losing $10 billion annually because of the new Facebook privacy policy, which I'll explain uh, a little later. Uh, we still have the big uh, fight over 5G at the airports, but more and more flights are being approved. I'll give you the latest update on the battle between the telcos and the FAA. This week, we're going to feature uh, a man who is bringing artificial intelligence and machine learning to agriculture, Jorge A. Raud. (laughs) And um, he was born in uh, Peru, and he has an interesting story about how he finally became a founder of a new startup. And of course, it was a huge Huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got a letter from Bob in Maryland. He's a long-term listener. Dear Doc and Andrew, I came across uh, a curious article about a U.S. cybersecurity researcher taking upon himself to launch a denial of service attack on North Korea. He was disappointed with the lack of U.S. response to the hermit kingdom's attacks against U.S. security researcher. Uh, And he took the matters into his own hands. What do you think, Doc? All the best, your faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. Well, Bob, that is an interesting story. Just over a year ago, an independent hacker who goes by the handle of P4X was hacked by North Korean spies. Now, P4X was just one victim of a hacking campaign that targeted Western security researchers with the apparent aim of stealing their hacker tools And the details about software vulnerabilities, Uh, he says he managed to prevent those hackers from swiping anything of value from him, but he wasn't happy that they even tried.
0: Now, are we pretty sure he's a white hat hacker then, a good guy hacker?
2: Uh, uh, We're not really sure.
0: Okay. Okay. But he thinks (laughs) he is. We don't
2: really know exactly who he is. Okay. Uh, He's... He sounds like a white hack in that he went public with this. That's true but too. We really don't know,
0: right? Okay. Now he
2: was upset that the U.S. didn't respond to this. He waited a year, and finally he decided to uh, take matters into his own hands. Now he found numerous unpatched vulnerabilities in in North Korean systems. Um, you know they had they basically this these they had not installed security patches and security updates. And this allowed him to single-handedly launch the denial-of-service attacks on servers and routers in uh, in the country. Uh, He also alluded to what he called ancient versions of web server software Apache that really has a lot of vulnerabilities in it. And then he started examining North Korea's own Homebrew operating system, the Red Star operating system, it's a variation of Linux. They, They didn't like using open source from other countries, so they wanted to have their own open source. And he described that Red Star operating system as old and likely vulnerable. Now, his attack was really successful. Key routers of the country went down. Uh, People were noticing traffic in North Korea was going down and websites were going down. Email was going down. This thing, this attack went on for about two weeks. So it was very successful. I'm quite certain that he's going to give that another shot. Uh, Essentially, he was giving North Korea a warning. Leave me alone or I'm coming after you.
0: Wow, one lone wolf against uh, an entire country.
2: Yeah, it's it, uh, it's just kind of an of a nice story. But you know, but the the thing is that what what I thought was most notable was that he he outlined. I didn't give all the details of the vulnerabilities in North Korea, but he outlined those vulnerabilities. So so these guys uh, they're going out hacking the rest of the world, uh, but it, the, but they're leaving themselves open to be hacked by the rest of the world. Yeah. Uh, we got an email from Alex in Richmond. Dear Tech Talk, what are your thoughts about buying a refurbished or renewed computer on Amazon instead of a new one? Is it wise or not? Alex in Richmond. Well, Alex, uh, it depends on where you buy it, really. There are there are a lot of different qualities of refurbished machines. Now, if you buy it, it depends if you buy it from the manufacturer or third party. Now, if you buy it from the manufacturer, you're more likely to get a pretty reliable machine because a lot of manufacturers... Essentially, somebody buys a computer and then they return it because they don't don't like it. They don't like the keyboard. They don't like the size of it. They don't like the weight. So they just return it. And they can't sell a returned computer as new. So they they check it out, tune it up, clean it up, and sell it as refurbished. And if you get one of those computers, you're essentially getting a, a new machine because it's not that people returned the machine because it wasn't working. It's just because they didn't like it. So that's not 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 a, not a bad deal. I mean, Apple sells refurbished machines that are in that category. I, I never bought anything from Apple that way because they don't discount it very much, and I figured, you know, it's not worth a small. The, the, the small discount that they give get a refurbished screen. It lens. could be but, the critical
0: oh. difference for somebody, though. I mean, I've looked at those listings, too. And I mean, and there's some good things. And for a while, for example, they, they stopped making a 17-inch screen of quite a few years ago now, a decade ago or so. Mm-hmm. So, if you know, there was a time now it's getting a little long in the tooth. But there was a time when you could get those, you know, refurbished. So it's like, well, if I really want the biggest possible screen on my laptop, this is what I can get. And it and it will work.
2: Yeah. yeah. So they're, so they're, they're, they're not, they're, they're not really that, uh, that, that bad. Uh, now there are, there are third party rehab places. These are people that, that pick up old equipment, they rehab it and then resell it. That's a lot spottier. Uh, Now, but you can get some really good deals there. But the key is you've got to check the reviews and you've got to get a get a a look. that place has got thousands of reviews, so they can't all be fake if you get anyone on Amazon. And if you get a if you get a provider that's that's selling junk, they're going to get boatloads of bad reviews. So uh, so you could possibly get something there, but you're just taking a, a little bit more of a risk. Then you want to ask, does it have a warranty or a guarantee? I mean, if it does, that's a good sign. You're probably not going to get any warranty or guarantee that lasts more than 90 days. Probably the max is six months. Uh, you might want to ask what version of the operating system it comes with. If you get a Windows machine, make certain you get it Windows 10 or Windows 11. Uh, you know, if you're getting a Mac, always get the latest operating system for the Mac. Uh, and if you uh, you know if, if you take these precautions, you could you could probably find something that would be okay. Just yeah. Like Andrew said, there there are times when it's. Uh, when it, when it is worth it. You know, uh, so, you can't yeah.
0: overstate, though, the the what you just said about looking at the reviews. One thing you said was thousands, like the more yeah. reviews, the better. And the other thing I look at is how many, the percentage of how many excellent or very goods there are, because, you know, some people are very good, they're happy, but they say one thing could have been better. And how many negative, like how many zeros or ones are, you know, there are no zeros. Right. How many ones are there? If there's a really high minority of ones, you want to watch out a little bit. But if, if generally speaking, most people are totally happy or really quite happy. And, and when you look at that percentage, It tells you a little bit better maybe than just the 4.5 versus, you know, 4.1 rating, whatever the average is.
2: The other thing I do on the Amazon reviews, I'll click on it. I'll I'll get a list of the reviews. And you can either sort them as highest reviews first or most recent reviews. Yeah. And I always sort them on most recent.
0: That's a good point, too. Absolutely, because things go downhill sometimes. You
2: might have something that's 4.5 because it's been going on for a long time. But the most recent Twenty of them in a row are bad. Yeah,
0: like something really bad has happened. You know, this 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 works for restaurants too, right, Doc? <laughs> I mean, yeah. The recent reviews matter because things may have gone downhill since you know since the that's, since in the last couple that's months. Exactly right. Yeah,
2: and, and you do have to watch. There are fake reviews all over. That's Amazon, the other so
0: thing. So you want to look for a lot of reviews. That's, yeah. why, that's
2: why I look for a lot of reviews because you you can't fake you know thousands, but you can certainly fake a hundred.
0: Yes. And, <laughs> and companies point.
2: pay for that, even though Amazon says it's not allowed. There are companies that they just they they out they've got a whole team they got hundreds of people that work out of their home at an hourly rate, or they get paid per review and they just and they just take a contract. You just buy you know 500 reviews and pay them so much money and they have their teams do it. it it's a business, mm-hmm. so you, you you really can't you can't trust the reviews, or, but um, unless there are just a lot of them, too many to fake. We got an email from Shell in Arlington. Dear Doc and Andrew, about two years ago, I bought a wireless keyboard to make things easier with my laptop, uh, and it, it also comes with a, uh, with a, a mouse. Uh, yesterday, the keyboard stopped uh, working, but the mouse still works. You know, I tried. I changed the batteries in the uh, keyboard. It still doesn't work. I rebooted the computer. still didn't work. What do you think my problem might be? Well, Shell, probably your, your keyboard's died, uh, and the, the USB transmitter's okay because your mouse is still working, so we know the USB's working. Now, you could try to update the driver. It, I mean, it could be that you, you need to update the driver, so you could go click. You've got a Windows machine. You could click on the Start button, and then you could type the word device in the little search thing, and, and you'll see Device Manager. Select Device Manager. Then click on the arrow on the left side uh, uh, that says keyboards and expand it, and then you want to right-click on the entry that says wireless keyboard and then uh, click on Update Driver. And so, if that, if you can update the driver, see if that fixes it. Uh, now, if you can't even, if you can't even find the device in the list, uh, then chances are it's not working, and then you'll just have to buy another one. So. But my guess is it's not working. Now, the other thing, you said you bought it two years ago. A lot of these uh, uh, USB uh, wireless keyboards have three-year warranties. So you may be able to get it replaced under warranty. So i check your warranty before you bought a new one. We got an email from Arnie in Colorado Springs. Hi, Dr. Shirts. Fake Spot, known for its web browser extension, uh, is very useful for weeding out fake product reviews. It suddenly is no longer on the iPhone or iPad app because Apple sent, Amazon sent a message to Apple, a takedown request. They uh, Amazon said, we don't like this fake spot application because it's giving misinformation to our users and scaring them, and we don't like it. Uh, uh, what do you think about that? Arnie in Colorado Springs. Well, well you are right. Apple did take down the fake spot review app off of its uh, app store last year. Um, now, of course, uh, Amazon says it wasn't accurate. Now, what FakeSpot says is that, it, is that Amazon's just trying to cover up all the fraudulent reviews that they've got, and they don't like all the bad news that, that FakeSpot is giving. Now, I think FakeSpot performs a good service for computers. It uses AI to analyze the syntax of reviews and because a lot of review, you know fake reviews, the person doesn't know anything about the product, so they sort of make generic statements. And so they have looked; they have developed a, uh, uh, an AI tool that can that can uh, that can analyze that and give you the you know the percentage of real reviews versus fake reviews. Now the good news is, even though the app's not on your iPhone or iPad, you can still go to the Fake Spot website, www.fakespot.com. And um, and you can you can search you, you can paste in a link there and do the search right, uh, right on the website. Or you you know it's more convenient. You, you could actually install an extension for your browser, and then then if you're surfing the web, you can very you can very easily do a, a analysis of the of the reviews. I think it's not a not a bad idea to look at the reviews. I, you know, I, I, I used to use those tools a lot. Now I I sort of don't know what they look for. And now I just simply look for a lot of reviews that we were talking about earlier, thousands. And, uh, and then it's, it's hard to get too many fakes there. We got an email from John in Chesapeake. Dear Tech Talk, I need to create a system restore point for last Monday.
0: Okay, I don't even know what that means, Doc. <laughs> <laughs> I got to be honest with you.
2: <laughs> so what, what, what happens, Windows has a, a restore point where you can, uh, you, you, can, you can set a restore point and it will... Take a snapshot of the Windows operating system at that moment. Uh And then if you want to revert back, like, and then suppose you do something really bad, Uh and you say, oh, my goodness, I've got to go back before I installed that malware. You can go back to the restore point that occurred before, say, the malware installation, and it will revert back to what it was. So, uh, just, you know, whenever you install new software, typically windows will set a restore point before you install the new software. And there are different things that trigger the restore, the restore point, or you can trigger it yourself. Uh, so, but the thing is you can't create a restore point from the past. Oh no. <laughs> because, because the, you, you can't take a snapshot of this, of the system as it was last Monday today, <laughs> because it's. You don't have anything to take a snapshot of. So that just doesn't make any sense. So uh, what you could do, the only thing, the only options that you've got, uh, John, would be if you had a backup, if you had backed up your system, not not simply a restore point, if you backed up your system, you could restore it from the backup. That would be an option. And if you don't have that option, and uh, you, could, uh, you could try to just use regular malware removal to, tools. But if you're... Um, if if you're you know if your system is so badly corrupted you may just have to you know reset it and and in, install it again now can John you actually, actually create a restore
0: point for the um for in the present time like if i say oh i'm doing something really sensitive i want to make sure i don't lose what i'm doing right now can you create a restore point yep. in, in real time oh,
2: yeah you can yeah you can create a restore point right now uh-huh. and i always do that if i'm going to do anything that's you know that i may want to get back i you can create a restore point yeah okay You can do that. That's good practice. Uh, Windows will will create a restore point when you're doing certain functions. They'll create a restore point. Like maybe if you're installing uh, an update, they might create automatically a restore point before the update's there so you can revert back if the update screws things up. But I always, if I'm doing something critical, I'll I'll create a restore point. Now, it turned out that John, I didn't read this, he was downloading torrent files. Uh this this is a this is a peer to peer system where you can download files. Well, John, it turns out that a lot of these torrent files Ooh. have malware in. Yes.
0: them. Yes. You better know who you're get getting. These
2: torrent files. See, yeah. see what people go to the torrent files. They say, "Oh, I don't want to pay for Microsoft Office. I'm just going to go get that free version on the torrent yes. file." On the torrent. So they'll so they'll download a free copy of Microsoft Office, which is chuck full of malware. Wow! So uh, I would never trust. That's uh, something that I download from a torrent. Penny, uh, penny file. Wise pound
0: foolish. <laughs> you yeah. really don't want to do that, especially
2: yeah. if you're trying to get free software. Right? Uh, there's only one reason that you've got that going on is uh, if they put if they put malware in it. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at Stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can.
0: Yes, we most certainly will. And next, uh, artificial intelligence puts on overalls and starts farming. We'll learn about the man who brought AI and machine learning to agriculture.
1: If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University. Coming up in a moment.
3: The need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time.
4: How do you advance your career while still working full-time with an education that fits your schedule? Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time.
2: His last name is, pronounced, is spelled H-E-R-A-U-D, A-R-O-D. Jorge A.R.O.D. is a technologist and entrepreneur, best known as co-founder of Blue River Technology. He brought AI and machine learning to agriculture. Jorge was born 1968 in Peru. His father held a Ph.D. in electronics. His grandparents were farmers. And he spent a significant amount of time on the farm, so he understood the, the work that goes into growing crops. In 1986, he graduated from Markham College, that's a uh, high school. Uh, in 1993, he received a Bachelor of Science degree in electrical engineering from the Catholic University in Peru. While in college, he held a couple of jobs. So he had a job at IBM. He was basically an electrical engineer he just did repair and report services, kind of a IT flunky. And then he also then served as a lead engineer at Digita SA, uh, which was a uh, digital design company, and he did he did programming there. He had th- those two jobs while he was in college. After graduating from college, he uh, he actually moved up to he moved to California and enrolled in the graduate program at Stanford University. In 1995, he got a master's in electrical engineering from Stanford. He focused on computer architecture and engineering. In 1996, uh, he received a master's in engineering management from Stanford In engineering management. He focused on marketing finance and entrepreneurship. So he basically took two degrees. One was in the technology side and the other one was in the management side because, and if you look at his career, he sort of flipped from between technology and management all the way through. And that, Dual track for him, served him very well in his career. Uh, in July of 1996, he was hired by Trimble Navigation. That's a That was a uh, an IT company out there in Silicon Valley. They were in Sunnyvale, California. And, uh, you know, basically Trimble Navigation used GPS for all sorts of applications, whether it be with construction or trucking, and they were building all sorts of of, of GPS tools to to accomplish things. Now while at Trimble he designed and managed the development of four new products for vehicle tracking and the products that he that he that he designed and managed had combined revenue of about 25 million so he was quite successful. Now his products included sensors capable of monitoring the operation of industrial vehicles via GPS that was sort of the sort of the uh, MO of that of Trimble navigation. In September of 2002, he was promoted to, to Director of Engineering in the Agriculture Division. And they were working on precision agriculture. He managed all the engineering activities, including electrical, software, mechanical design, controls, as well as GPS. Now, in uh, 2007, he's promoted to Director of Business Development for Trimble. And, and they wanted him to, uh, Trimble wanted to expand in the, in the precision agriculture department. They wanted to expand by acquiring uh, some startups. They wanted to bring in new blood into the company. So he actually uh, identified and evaluated nine different companies as possible acquisition targets for precision agriculture. And ultimately, Trimble bought four of them. And in the process of doing that, he got to know the founders. He got to know their stories. He, under, he understood the startups from the inside out. Uh, after they bought those four companies, they put them into a new division called Precision Agriculture. And, they, uh, and they, they basically built this division around him. He started with one employee himself, and they ended up with 60 employees. And um, after he took over the division and he bought these four companies, they grew the revenue from the initial point when they purchased them, by, and they grew it by a factor of five while he was there. Then in 2010, uh, he became a Sloan Fellow, and he enrolled in the Sloan program at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Uh, this is basically an executive MBA. In order to get into the program, you had to have 10 years of experience in the field. So you're just working with experienced guys. Uh, now, his focus was on leadership and entrepreneurship. See, now he's beginning to hone his business skills that, that the business side of his career, he graduated with an, with an executive MBA in 2011. Now it turned out that Trimble sent him to Stanford because they wanted, they were grooming him for, for bigger and better things. And the deal was, we'll send you to this executive MBA program and you have to return to Trimble. If you don't return to Trimble, you're going to have to uh, repay the cost of the education. Well, while he was there, uh, while he was there, he uh, he met uh, Lee Redden, who was the the man who was he would co- he would co-found uh, a company with. And uh, Lee Redden was a PhD student and a robotics guy. Uh, they met while well, they were both taking the same class, which was Lean Launchpad, the Lean Launchpad. Basically. What do you What do you think that means? Like launching a startup.
0: <laughs> but how to do it in an efficient way? Then lean. How to do it
2: in an efficient uh-huh. way. You yeah, know, lean means you don't spend much money. And you just you try to develop your your basic uh, concept and you become profitable before you start booking up expenses. So it's a lean launch pad. They took that class and they and they, um, and they uh, uh, wanted to uh, they decided they wanted to work together. I mean, what I was I was watching Jorge talk. He said it's really hard to find a co, you know, a co-founder. And he just really he and he and Lee Redden got along really well. So they decided they wanted to start a, a, a company and they wanted to, and their general idea was uh, they wanted to make farming more sustainable through robotics, machine learning and computer vision. That was the that was sort of the broad scope. And so uh, I, I, I heard him talk. I mean, he, he struggled in the beginning at, at, at the time he, when he was going to school. His wife was pregnant. They were going to have their child. Uh, she wasn't working and, and she said, well, uh, Jorge, you know, you're going to quit your job. We have to pay back all this money for your education and, uh, and you're not going to earn anything on the startup. How are we going to survive? He said, well, well, honey, we're going to do it. And they, and they did it. Mm. Uh, but it was, it was really lean times. I mean, at right in the beginning, he, uh, they, and so he and, uh, Lee Redden, they formed Blue River Technology, which, uh. Which uh, you know, and uh, and Jorge served as the uh, CEO. Now,
0: by the way, that makes him the showman in this. Uh, we we talk about the showman and the what and the, and the nerd. The
2: showman and the nerd. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I guess he's, that makes him the showman. The showman, and, and see, he hired a a guy that was a machine learning and robotics guy. Yeah, who was the nerd. Yeah. So it was a very. It, it, so we do have the showman and the nerd back again. <laughs> yes. That's very very common now. Now, what they did when they were starting the company, it was very smart how they started it. You, you know, when you're starting a, a startup, you want to you go to your customer and you want to uh, do what they need first. So you build your first products directly around a customer's need. Uh, and it turned out that they were uh, in, very close to California's Central Valley and, uh, and uh, where farmers were, uh, you know, growing lettuce not far from them. So... So their, their 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 first product was really a lettuce thinning device because they said – because one of the problems that the farmers had, you know, when they plant lettuce in the field, they'll put, you know, three seeds in every hole, but you only want one head of lettuce there. So after the seeds sprout, they'll send uh, um, people on in the field and they'll pick the extra sprouts by hand to thin the lettuce.
0: Which must be really time-consuming and difficult work.
2: Yeah, that is tough work. So they they work. created a um, uh, a machine that that had uh, that you know that had cameras and a little picker, and they and they would go down there. They'd focus on the on the lettuce plants, and they would pick two of them. And they would thin it automatically. Now they went through multiple versions. They went through eleven versions of that machine, by the way. So they take it out in the field, they test it, take it back, test it, take it back and test it. Finally, they got it to the point that it actually worked better than the hand pickers and faster. So then what they did. They went to the farmer. and they said, look, uh, we can do this faster and better. Uh, you pay us as much as you pay the guys that do it by hand, and we'll just run our machine over and, and do your thinning. So they ended up uh, basically doing the lettuce thinning for all the farmers there in the Central Valley. They were pulling and just selling that service, pulling it about $5 million a year. So that was a, a very clever way to, to start their business. Now, they, in the very beginning, they, they, sort of their, they, they, they got support, financial support from their friends and family. They did get a grant from the National Science Foundation uh, to try to apply some science to agriculture. Uh, In addition, because they were in Silicon Valley, and uh, and the guy that they took the lean startup from was in the the whole venture field, uh, they were able to raise an additional $30 million from various venture funds, including the Stanford Angels, as well as entrepreneurs like Steve Blank, Steve Blank is the guy who taught the Lean Launchpad course at Stratford.
0: Is that why they call it Blank Check stock?
2: Yeah, that's, that, <laughs> he issues blank checks. <laughs> yeah, that's a funny last name. Yeah, well, now, it's one of
0: those you know people have those names sometimes that coincide very well with what they do.
2: That's right. Now the other problem that they you know once they once they got their lettuce thinning machine done that was a fairly uh, you know in the in his view simple machine, one that they could do easily, they, they started attacking the problem of persistent weeds. This is the problem that farmers have. Weeds are uh, are deadly for them. And these persistent weeds, they keep coming back, coming back, coming back. And so what farmers do, they they just blanket the field with weed killer. And you know, the lettuce gets, everything gets sprayed with weed killer. And it's bad for the bad for the environment. It's It's bad for the consumer. It's really probably bad for the lettuce. So they they developed uh, a precision way of putting on the weed killer. They'd have cameras on the device and they would look down and they would identify what is a weed and what is a plant. And if they identify a weed, they would have a very thin stream of weed killer that would just land on that weed. And so they would only put weed killer on the weed itself. They wouldn't do blanket um, spreading. And they were able to uh, actually... Uh, reduced the amount of uh, weed killer that they put out by a factor of ten, so they could actually ten percent of the normal amount that they would use is all they needed because they were doing very precision weeding, and that was that was very um, very successful. Uh, that particular weeding device, you know, he was talking about how they do iterations. They they did ten iterations on that device to get that thing going, uh, and what they do. This was in the first seven years of the of the company. They they actually. Um, Would have an iteration of a new machine that would come out about every eight months or so. And the cool thing is
0: that they get to put this out in the field and really use it. uh, Like in the case of lettuce, too, like where they plan to actually be. You know, they they looked around at the nearest farm and said, "Well, what can we do?" So I think in terms of logistics and development, they really saved a lot of money by having a real world, you know, place to try out your product and create the next version of it as you are developing it.
2: That's exactly right. I mean, they didn't have to have a lettuce field to test their product, right? They had farmers. They could, they didn't, they, they didn't need a test lab. They just go out and, and, and work with the farmers directly. So that was really a very good way to, to develop a, um, a, a technology. <clears throat> now they were actually, uh, becoming very successful in the agriculture business. The people were taking note of these guys, uh, especially John Deere. John Deere is a big uh, farm implement company. They, uh, you know, they make combines, they make all kinds of equipment for the farm, uh, for the farm industry. But prior, starting around 9, 2014, John Deere's sales were beginning to decline. They were at $32 billion in 2014. They were $26 billion in 2015. They were at $23 billion in 2016. See, what John Deere's, what happens what A very, it's a classic thing that happens to companies that, that have a cash cow, they, they stop innovating. So John Deere was not innovating fast enough to continue to grow. And they knew, John Deere knew that the future of farming was going to be defined by artificial intelligence and machine learning, uh, by um, robotics. They, I mean, you could see the writing on the wall there. So they had to become one of the top innovators. So John Deere purchased Blue River uh, for $305 million dollars. Yeah. and so it sounds kind uh, of
0: like a cheap you know when you hear some of the crazy valuations that sounds pretty low actually doesn't it sounds pretty low yeah yeah, yeah.
2: But it's—I uh, suppose it's not as scalable. as, say when you're on the internet. Well, that's right because it.
0: this isn't a virtual product like a lot of the acquisitions in IT. You know, where you're just buying an app or something. This is—you actually have to manufacture these things. You actually have to manufacture. Yeah, them. and then yeah. you
2: got to put it out in the field and test it. it does it's not quite as scalable as something that's just all software, Absolutely. where they say software is eating the world. This is software <laughs> and hardware. So, um, so th- this. Th- so they they bought it for three hundred five million dollars and this just underscores the immense value that ai that uh, that john deere placed uh, on ai i mean now jorge now works for john deere and he's vp of automation and autonomy at john deere so you see this so now john deere has just released a tractor an autonomous driving tractor it'll, it'll plow the field without the farmer even being in it i'm a little worried about that, about letting the tractor loose like that but yeah, but but they're 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 going to just totally autonomous systems now, and uh, I, I noticed on that autonomous tractor that John Deere had, there's still a, a cab there. I got a feeling there's going to be a farmer sitting in the uh, well, sitting I in the mean, tractor. Well,
0: it depends. I mean, it's kind of like you know the self-driving cars or whatever. After a while, we will get used to the idea if it works well. You know, it could that could save the family farm. I'm telling you right now because life is so hard on on farms. That it people, is. you know, you, you, people who grew up on a farm often don't want to become farmers like their parents because it's just too hard a life. And and if you had some of these technologies to make the quality of your life better, less time out in a field on a tractor, maybe more time to spend indoors and doing things or planting your, you know, crop or whatever, it, it might make, you know, it might make that lifestyle more attractive in time.
2: It it could. It could. I mean, you know, technology is going to be, a, you know, because now you can automate the uh, the weed killing. You can automate the thinning. Uh, they can use AI for the planting. Uh, yeah, that, and there's, there's another article. I, I could bring it up now. Uh, they're, they're also using AI in agriculture where they'll fly drones over a field, and then they use AI to analyze the images from the field, and they can tell what's ailing the field. Like this part of the field needs a little more water, this part of the field needs a little bit more fertilizer. And they're doing more and more of this AI analysis. They're so doing multispectral imaging, they can capture different wavelengths. And they can see the presence of stress on the plants because they actually reflect light in a little different way when they become stressed. And by looking at the stresses that the plants are feeling, they know how to go in there and fix the problem. So I could see where uh, John Deere would probably hire a company that was doing AI analysis using drones, combine it with their autonomous division here, and they've got a complete package. Now imagine, really... so
0: farming could be, <laughs> you know, in a few years, instead of walking the fields and bending your, you know, breaking your back and all of that, you could be sitting in your farmhouse, getting all this input on your computer system, making decisions, uh, you know, uh, typing commands for machines to go out there <laughs> and do the farming for you. It could be quite a comfortable lifestyle in the future.
2: It it could be. Yeah. Uh, I think what we'll end up with, though, because if you look at this super expensive equipment, you need to have. Larger tracts of land. Uh huh. Okay. The small farmer that's got a small plot. So it's still a
0: difficult thing for a small farmer to have that kind of money. Yeah. Consolidation. This is a force of consolidation Uh in
2: farmland. And guess, guess who the biggest farmland owner is in the United States?
0: It's not John Deere. It wouldn't be that. Bill Bill
2: Gates. Bill (laughs) Gates. Bill Gates has been buying farmland consistently. (laughs) Isn't that right?
4: Oh
0: my gosh.
2: So what? What I believe is what we're going to find, <laughs> unfortunately, is that all this automation well, is going to be used by oh, the and, people who've consolidated and have these huge tracts of land.
0: Oh, Doc, and I was just hoping they'd save the family farm, but maybe not, huh?
2: It's not, no. Mm-hmm. This, okay. No, I mean, even, you know, my, my wife's cousins are all farmers. Uh, two of her cousins are John Deere. And in order for them to survive... They had to form—the cousins all had to form a—actually, uh, her father and all of his brothers were also farmers. Uh, they, 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 had, they had to form a consortium of about four of them to, to consolidate the land among all of them, and then they could buy a super expensive, you know, combine from John Deere, and then they would use it to farm all the property which they had consolidated. So the only way they could survive was to, was to buy a lot of land and consolidate. So all the brothers went together and did that. That's the trend. That's the trend that is irreversible.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, uh,
2: so um, hopefully, they, maybe John Deere could come up with something that's cheap enough for just a, a small farmer to get it, but I, I, I doubt it. So there you go. Uh, everything you wanted to know about AI, robotics, and machine learning in agriculture as expressed by Jorge Ehroud.
0: Yes, and uh, we just talked about, too, buying uh, other companies and how important that is a factor right now in, in what's going on in the world of business and IT. And is that good or bad for the consumer and for technology? We're uh, Pull up a chair get yourself a coffee and join Doc in the uh, faculty lounge for observations next on
1: Tech Talk Radio.
3: The need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time.
4: How do you advance your career while still working full-time with an education that fits your schedule? Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University, changing lives one student at a time. If it's
1: technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio.
2: Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for observations from the faculty lounge. Buying the competition is the topic. Is it good or is it bad? Companies expand their offerings by buying the competition. Look, Facebook bought Instagram. Facebook bought WhatsApp. Facebook bought Oculus VR, virtual reality with the Oculus goggles. Google bought YouTube. Google bought Waze. And that was a sad, sad day for me because I love Waze. Google bought Motorola, Motorola Mobility when they wanted to get into the um, phone business. They bought Nest when they wanted to get into the device business, the Internet of Things business. They bought DoubleClick when they wanted to expand their um, their pay-per-click advertising.
0: Doc, I got to ask you though about ways. I know you're you're still a user now. Is that correct? Yeah, I am. In what way has it changed for you as a user?
2: As, it actually hasn't. They have maintained. Uh, they have maintained it.
0: Because the thing is that they already had a robust. They have a robust program with Google Maps, where you have directions and all of that, and you know, and, and traffic reports and all of that. How do they? How do they manage to compete what with themselves? Google
2: Google Maps did not have crowdsourced feedback. Uh-huh. So, uh huh. So Google Maps, they would just you know, you would just get. But now with Waze, it. Um, Waze is set up where it tracks the speed you're driving so they know the average speed on all of the roads where you're headed, and they can predict your arrival time within minutes. Uh, people will tell them where there's a speed trap, where there are speed cams, where there are red light cams, um, and and so you get a warning that there's a speed trap ahead. Uh, Waze will, if there's, say, uh, an accident on 95, Waze gets that feedback very fast, and they'll reroute you around the around the backup, and they'll do it in a way that you can actually exit before you're trapped. So the crowdsourcing of Waze was is fantastic, and and the the way that Waze updates the their map, like if there's a if if a road is out or if a new road comes in, literally within a day or two that new road is on the map because people they have map editors, so they have this crowdsourcing really down. A lot. Now what Google did and that, so that made Waze better than Google maps. Now what Google is doing, they are importing the crowdsource data into Google's map from Waze. And, uh, and I'm glad they didn't really, uh, stop Waze from growing. So they still support it.
0: And you still so, like
2: it. Yeah. So I like it. Yeah. yeah. I like Waze. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, they, you know, and it's, uh, it, it uh, you know, and I, because I get feedback, you know, rerouting feedback so, so quickly. But, but you see, Waze, Waze was an Israeli company. Okay. W- w- and so I, I read, I, we featured the guy that started Waze and he was from Israel. They started Waze. That's what, and they started having better maps in Europe and in, uh, in Israel than they had in the U.S. And they had to expand to the U.S. And w- this guy did not, this guy wanted to just totally, uh, totally knock Google Maps out of the, um, you know, out of the running. He wanted to just take on Google, but he had gotten VCs who had supported him, and the VCs made him sell the company to Google because they wanted an exit, and, the, and they did it over his objections. So they they sold Waze to Google for a billion dollars, and they got their exit money, and he he didn't want to go. He was unhappy with that, but uh, but Google, uh, saw that as a real competition to them, so they just wanted to buy it up. So this is very commonly done. The The companies will buy their competition, or if they want to accelerate their innovation in an area like John Deere, they'll buy a company. Now the question is, this uh, is this good? Does this process limit uh, competition? Uh, is it not good for the consumers? I mean, you've you've heard a lot of discussions about this. People are complaining about the Facebook platform. They say they should break up Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook. They say the three of those are like an advertising joggernaut. They, they collect all this data on you with WhatsApp, with Instagram, and with Facebook, that they should just break them up. And so there are people in Congress are saying this acquisition thing is not good for the consumers. But there are other people who say, look, it's, it really is good. You can accelerate technology. There are really two sides of the coin. Uh, like uh, Blue Rivers, uh, Jorge, his company. I think I think he understood the acquisition business. I think he pro- I think he was structuring that to be to be acquired. And I think you know he probably is quite happy with the acquisition by John Deere because he wanted to scale up, and it was you know difficult to scale something that's that industrial. And uh, I think he wanted to scale up, and then and uh, and so John Deere is a good platform to put his technology on. So. Um, so in this case, I, I think it was it was it was really good. Now the VCS think this is great because it gives them an exit path. Uh, but in many cases, it's bad for the founders because they lose control. So, on on average, uh, I I think there's some pluses and some minuses, and it really depends on, on what the companies um, what what the companies decide to do. Yeah, because sometimes they, uh, they're
0: using it to stifle just competition, like we just said. Like if you buy, you know, you know, why, why did Google buy Waze is just to not have a competitor. So right. that's probably not advancing technology all that much, if at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, although it improved Google's own product. But then there's, you know, the blue rivers or other things. When a big company buys a small company, precisely because it offers something new, not because it's a competitor, but because it offers something new. And now you've got, you know, the economy of scale where a big company has the money to continue funding that project. Uh, I think right. then it's definitely a good thing for technology for sure, and ultimately for the consumer because we have new forms of technology emerging.
2: That's right. And you know, Facebook has a reputation of buying competition and shutting them down. Yes, they just buy them and shut them down. <laughs> That's right. Or subsume, they, the, subsume you know, them to I, such I, an extent. Know, I, yeah, I, I don't. I don't have a really good opinion of Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> well,
0: if, if, if it makes you feel any better, this is the week he dropped down to number ten on the list of uh, the richest people in the world. So you know, he took quite well, a hit this week. Probably, so you should be a little yeah. bit happy if you know. If you like, Schaden right. Schadenfreude, what they call in German. You know, happiness is someone else's misfortune. You should be a happy man today, Doc.
2: But there is there is something too when when you talking about all these startups, I I, I think the, 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 the discussion with Jorge really did highlight the great ecosystem we have for startups in the United States. Look at look at him. He you know he he was an immigrant, he came to the US, he's from Peru, he went to a graduate school at Stanford, and then he worked in industry for fifteen years for for Trimble and in in, in precision agriculture at the end. And he really learned the, um, learned the business on applying technology to businesses. He bought startups. He learned while he was at Trimble. So he understood, he, and he got to know the founders. He understood that. Then he went back to Stanford and got a, a degree that focused on entre- entrepreneurialism. He met folks at Stanford when he was taking this lean startup class, met his friend there. Uh, and then they decided to start a company. And the instructor for the class was one of the, was, was one of the investors,
0: so he, he's the ultimate um, insider, really, for Silicon Valley, I think, because he, you know, he goes to Stanford three times for th- two yes. degrees and one certificate. And he also um, – he, he, I think you know, the difference, Doc, is that he's not realizing some sort of life – he's not some starry-eyed young person with a, a, a lifelong dream. He realizes there's this new technological possibility and that the best way to do it is to have your own startup at first and with yep. precisely probably the goal of, of eventually letting it be purchased by a larger company. He has no problem with that. I think he goes in knowing that's going to be the ultimate outcome.
2: That's right, and they're and they're out there in, in, uh, in around San Francisco. You have all the ecosystem there to support the startup. You know, you got the you got the BCS, you've got the angel investors, you've got uh, the university there, which uh, you know puts people together. That, uh, that that would be that would be good for the startups. And so this ecosystem that we have is really good. And yet again, we have another startup formed by an immigrant. I like Very that, interesting. Yes. You know, uh, very interesting. So I think this does highlight something really good here that we have in the U.S. So there you go. I think, uh, as we say, it's a mixed bag buying the competition. Sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad.
0: <laughs> yeah. What's good for one is bad for another. That, that is always the rule in economics anyway, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately. But here's the thing, Doc. we got like five minutes. Maybe we keep going. What else did you want to talk about today? Yeah,
2: let's just do that. Okay, so uh, let's. the FAA is clearing commercial aircraft to fly near 5G, finally. Now, at least 90% of the U.S. commercial air fleet is uh, is somewhat shielded from interference from the new 5G wireless market. So the, okay, the issue, I talked to this about a couple of weeks ago, the issue is in the mid the band. These are the, the frequency bands that go from 3.7 gigahertz to 4.2 gigahertz, if that's the mid band internationally. And uh, that midband is the band that has all the bandwidth to give the high speed boost. So 5G has a lot more speed throughput because of the midband. So that's very important. It turns out that those midband frequencies are very close to the same frequencies that are used for devices on aircraft, like for altimeters or like for GPS. And people are saying that there could be sidebands. There could be uh, frequency leakage that leaks out of the mid-bands into these other bands and interferes with, with aircraft flying. And so the FAA was like freaking out, and they were canceling flights. Well, it turned out the FAA now has been working with the telcos, and they have a compromise. Uh, the telcos have agreed to lower the power of their transmitter, 5G transmitters around airports to use some directional antenna so they're not pointing a 5G antenna in a flight path as an aircraft is landing. And, uh, and when they do that, uh, 90% of, of the planes are fine. Now, they're still doing an investigation of the other 10% of the planes. And so now uh, it's not such a big disruption as they're saying in the beginning. Now, actually, in Europe, they figured all, out all that long before the 5G launch. Only in America could the FCC and the FAA not get along. And, uh, and then they waited until launch day... To try to figure it out and duke it out, but it looks like they, um, they they've solved the problem, and essentially the U.S. is going to do what the EU did months ago. So that's really really good news for us.
0: Is it bad news uh, for consumers? Like, will you still be able to get 5G when you're actually at the airport?
2: Yeah, I, I think you'd be able to get five G at the airport because they, they can have low power transmitters in the you know, so highly the
0: targeted, like yeah, for the terminal it's itself, and not a, and, and get, not the airfield. Yeah, yeah okay. So what
2: they're doing, they, they just they just don't want to have a big blast of energy right at the land on, on the landing, yes. like the landing, yes, you know, landing path. Yeah. Now, um, now Apple's push for uh, for um, you know privacy has cost Meta. That's the that's the parent company of uh, of uh, Facebook. Uh, It's cost them $10 billion a year. Now, now what happened was, actually, Apple does not like, you know, these companies just grabbing all your data and using it and selling it. So Apple used to have something, uh, which they called identifier for advertisers, an IDFA. They actually had that built into your iPhone, identifier for advertisers, IDFA. And you would have no options in the past, whether somebody like Facebook would use IDFA to track you all around the world. And so Apple made it really easy for, you know, Facebook to track you. They just, once they knew your IDFA, they looked at everything you did, where you went, what you browsed. They, they had you targeted perfectly. And then Apple changed policy. Uh, they, they decided they didn't like these guys abusing their, their power here. And they're right. Do you so think they, that was
0: an eth- like based on ethics only for Apple, or is there a profit motive in doing that?
2: Well, there's actually a profit motive here, too. Uh, uh, well, I'll get to that. Yeah, there's this. Uh, so what they did, now they have a pop-up. So if somebody starts tracking data using your IDFA, Apple asks a simple question. Do you want this application to track you?
0: Yeah, we see that a lot, yeah.
2: And you can say yes or no. Yeah. And it turns out 53% of the people say no, and the other 47% of the people probably don't read the pop-up. And, uh, and so they're just, uh, so with, by losing 53% of the people tracking 50 by losing that tracking of 53% of the people on the iPhone, Facebook is going to lose $10 billion a year in advertising revenue. That's 8% of the revenue. Think of if, if, uh. If 100% had uh, had actually opted in, they'd lose uh, like you know, billion. 16 billion. <laughs> <Yeah>. or, <you laughs> right. know, But only I don't know why 100% didn't opt in. Now what what Apple does? See, they for like Facebook and others, they give this really cryptic thing that makes it look terrible to be tracking. But when their app comes up to track you, they have a different message and they sell the tracking. They say, well, you know, we want to uh, you know help you keep your device oh, better. Oh wow. And they, and they sort of sell it, and it's a different presentation. So Apple, when they give the app give the user the choice, uh, they tend to uh, to allow Apple to track them. So lo and behold, Apple's advertising revenue went up.
0: Oh, there you go. There's the answer. There's a profit motive right there.
2: There's the profit motive. Yeah. Listen, we, we love all your emails. Email us at Talk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. And go to the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu. Check out our programs in healthcare, nursing, computer science, cyber security, networking, accounting, business, culinary arts and hospitality, and when you go back to Stratford, tell them that you have heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio.
0: Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.